It's fine. It's fine. I'm not bitter. Welcome to Ten Cent Takes, the podcast where we make comics trivia rain like dollar bills on Magic Mike Night. My name is Mike Thompson, and I am joined by my co-host, the Mistress of Mayhem herself, Jessica Frazier. <laughs> it is I. Hello, Mike. Hello. If you're new to the podcast, we like to look at comic books in ways that are both fun and informative. We want to check out their coolest, weirdest, and silliest moments, as well as examine how they've been woven into the larger fabric of pop culture and history. Today, we are traveling through time and talking about the 35-year legacy of one of the strongest cult franchises around, Highlander. But before we do that, Jessica, what is one cool thing that you've watched or read lately? My brother has some copies of classic Peanuts comics, and it's so much fun. It's good, wholesome fun, and Snoopy-related media always makes me nostalgic. And Mike, You've mentioned before that we're in California in the San Francisco Bay Area, but fun fact, I live right near Santa Rosa, which is the home of the Peanuts creator, Charles Schultz, when he was alive. So there's a museum there and an ice skating rink, which is super yeah. awesome. And Snoopy on Ice was huge when I was a kid. And that is definitely the place I also learned to ice skate. By the way, they throw a mean birthday party. Just saying. Not right this second. Don't tell me that. Not this second. We should do it. <laughs> is what I'm yeah. saying. <laughs> we should do it for ourselves. No, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> oh, I don't have children. <laughs> <laughs> but we do. You do, yes. Oh, they, they can come with us. I mean. Like, they're invited. Are they? Look at you hesitating we took the kids to the peanuts museum right before the the lockdowns happened that was that's, really cool that's lovely that's nice that you got to do that there's a lot of cool stuff to do it's really interactive it's also just a really fascinating experience because there's so much about the peanuts during their what 50 year run give or take it may not have been that long it may have been 30 or 40 but it, it was a long time and I really dug it. Like, there was a lot of cool stuff. So, yeah. And also, the cool thing about Santa Rosa is they've also got all those Snoopy statues all over town, too. They do, yeah. All the Peanuts characters, actually, because they have the Charlie Browns and the Lucys now and the Woodstocks. Oh, yeah. yeah, they're all over the place. But that used to be something fun we could do as a scavenger hunt. And actually, that's something you guys could still do, even yeah. with the lockdown, because most of them are outside, is just find that list of where all the Snoopies or whatever character is and go find them all. Cause we did that at, at one point, like as an adult, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> well, what about you, Mike? The complete opposite of something wholesome. We didn't actually have the kids for a few days. They were with their dad and we couldn't find anything new to watch. So we wound up binging the entire series of Harley Quinn on HBO max. Oh, you're ahead of me then. <laughs> Damn you. Well, this is my third time going through the series. We've just gotten to the point where we turn it on when we want to watch something that's kind of soothing in a way, even though it is not a soothing TV show. <laughs> um, 
But I still am having these full-on belly laughs where I'm breathless at the end. And it's just, it's so smart and funny and absolutely filthy with the violence. And then there are these moments of sweetness or genuine reflection. And it's just so damn refreshing. I was never much of a Harley fan, but this show and then the Birds of Prey movie really made me fall in love with that character. Also, side note, Michael Ironside, who played General Katana in Highlander 2, uh, he shows up in Harley Quinn doing the voice of Darkseid, which is a character he's been voicing since the 90s when he first started doing it for the Superman animated series. Oh, damn. So, just a little bit of symmetry there. All right, so before we begin, I have to say that this episode wound up being a rabbit hole full of other rabbit holes that I kept going down. So I want to give a little credit where it's due for a ton of my research. I really wound up leaning on two books, John Mosby's Fearful Symmetry and A Kind of Magic, The Making of Highlander by Jonathan Melville. And likewise, there's a YouTube series called Highlander Heart and an associated Facebook community with the same name that were just invaluable for my crash course. And finally, I want to give special thanks to Clinton Rawls, who runs Comics Royale, and Matt Kelly for taking the time to chat with me because they didn't have to. And they provided me with some really useful information for this episode. Yeah, I'm super excited about what lies in store. What's really funny is I'm actually, I feel like a kid before a test. Like I'm a little nervous right. because I've been cramming so hard for this. Like We both have. <laughs> we No, you especially, you especially, like you should be much more <laughs> nervous than me, Mike. No, just kidding. Please don't take that on. But <laughs> Oh, but yeah, no, I'm super excited and really ready to talk about all this stuff and learn more because I've just been consuming the media and right. the the comic books. But you're going to give me some back knowledge that's going to blow my brain and I'm excited. Oh, well, I'll try to live up to that high expectation. <laughs> Let's assume that you didn't know what the topic of this episode was. And if someone asked you what cult property from the 1980s spawned five movies, two TV series, a Saturday morning cartoon, an anime film, several video games, multiple tabletop games, audio plays, roughly a dozen novels, and four, okay, technically six, different comic books, what would your first answer be? Oh, goodness. What's funny is probably not Highlander. I'd probably, I would say like Batman, honestly. Yeah, I would have gone with something along the lines of G.I. Joe or some weird Saturday morning cartoon, something like that. I never would have guessed Highlander. I never would have assumed that. But it's just, it's really surprising to see how much has been generated out of this initial movie. Uh, Were you a fan of the movies or the show before we started binging everything for this episode? So I was actually a fan of the show via my dad who had it on hadn't watched the films before because mm-hmm. i was born in 1986 fun fact i was born when this thing was sent right. into the world we both were at the same time apparently i didn't have that exact experience of growing up watching it but he definitely had the tv show on in the 90s okay so that was what i was familiar with and i loved it and I would run around chopping things. I'd be at work. I was actually like, when I got older, I'd be like, there can be only one. And I'd, <laughs> I'd like swipe at someone. It's such an iconic dork. line. <laughs> it is. It transcends. Absolutely. Yeah. I was pretty young when the movie came out. And the show was how I became aware of it. And then 
when the show was airing, I was in high school and then I became aware that there was a movie that had inspired it. And so I was able to rent that when I was old enough to be trusted to go rent movies on my own by my parents <laughs> back when we couldn't stream everything. Oh my gosh. And there were rewind fees. <laughs> oh my gosh. Be kind, speaking, rewind. Speaking of things from the eighties, it's funny. We'll talk about it later on, but the show really brought in, I think a lot of people that otherwise wouldn't have been fans. Yeah. Before we start talking about the comic books, I, I really want to take a few minutes to talk about all the media and content that spun out of Highlander because it's a lot. And it was honestly, in a couple of cases, really surprising. I didn't know about half of this stuff before I began researching for the episode. And then, like I said, it was just constant rabbit holes that kept on leading me down more and more research paths. And it was really fun. But I want to talk about all this now. <laughs> Perfect. This is exactly what we're here for. And I'm, I think the people want to hear it, too. <laughs> I hope so. Okay, so why don't you summarize Highlander? If you had to give an elevator pitch, how would you summarize it? Oh, the film follows the past and present of Connor McCloud, an immortal who is just one of many vying to be the sole victor in an age-old battle where, in the end, there can be only one. Like, very simply. Yeah. There's a lot more to it. <laughs> But like how much of an elevator pitch? <laughs> yeah, I think that's pretty simple. It's about an immortal who basically keeps on fighting his way through history. And there's these really wonderful catchphrases that get us hooked. The movie's got actually a really interesting origin story of its own. It was written by this guy named Gregory Wyden when he was in his early 20s. That was when he wrote the initial screenplay. But he had already had a really interesting life up until then. He was one of the youngest paramedics in Laguna Beach at that point in time. And then he went on to become a firefighter while he was still a teenager. By 1981, he'd also worked as a DJ and a broadcast engineer. And then he signed up for a screenwriting course at UCLA. And he wrote this feature-length script called Shadow Clan. And it would go through a number of changes before it became Highlander. But the core theme of an immortal warrior named Connor McLeod wandering across the centuries is there. He wound up getting introduced to producers Bill Panzer and Peter Davis, who decided to option the film. And then they hired the screenwriters Larry Ferguson and Peter Bellwood to rework the script into what we eventually had wind up in theaters. And once the movie was greenlit, they brought in Russell Mulcahy to direct it. And I vaguely knew that Mulcahy had been doing music videos before this. For the most part, he had one other cult movie ahead of time. It was a horror movie, I think, called Razorback. But I didn't realize which music videos he'd been making until I started doing all this research. So I'm going to give you a small sampling, and you're going to okay. tell me if you've heard of these, okay? Sure, so, sure, sure. The Vapors Turning Japanese. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, okay. The Buggles video killed the radio star. Wow, yes. Duran Duran's Rio. Wow, yes. And Elton John's I'm Still Standing. Wow, that's actually a variety of right? characters. But also, those were all really iconic music videos. Like, not only songs, but music videos, because those were all in the very early days. And the dude's entire portfolio is just iconic. If you think about the music videos that really defined the genre. Yeah. Sometimes you just got it, I guess, huh? He has a lot of those music video elements. A lot of times 
in the movie, it feels like a music video, like when Brenda's being chased down the hall by the Kurgan and it's got all that dramatic lighting or that opening shot where they're in the wrestling match and you see the camera flying through everything. Yes. That was wild. That was really unusual to see camera work like that back then. The movie was distributed by 20th Century Fox. And I think at this point, we'd be more surprised if 20th Century Fox did a good job of marketing something (laughs) weird and cool because they really botched it. They wound up forcing cuts to the movie that created really weird plot holes because they didn't feel that audiences needed it or would understand it. And they wanted to make it simpler, but it really made things more confusing. European audiences, on the other hand, really embraced the film because they got a much better version. So case in point, I'm going to show you the two main posters for it. This is the American poster for the movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, oh, wow. Would you, would you like to describe scary. what you're seeing? Wow. Okay. Before I even say any of the words, what you first see is Connor McLeod, but it's this awful grainy picture of him he Mm -hmm. looks like there's something wrong with his face which he shouldn't necessarily and he looks like he's about to murder someone he's like glaring off into the distance and at the top it says oh it's in black and white by the way and at the top it says he fought his first battle on the scottish highlands in 1536 He will fight his greatest battle on the streets of New York City in 1986. His name is Connor McLeod. He is immortal. Highlander! (laughs) (laughs) Credits at the bottom. Rated R. Absolutely rated R. Yeah. Also, I feel like featuring original songs by Queen does not get the billing that it should. I agree. I jammed my way through that film. And this just... The whole series, actually, the whole franchise Mm. I jammed my way through. Yeah. And if you listen to the Kind of Magic album, that is basically the unofficial soundtrack to the movie. And it's so good. I don't know how they got those perpetual rights to Princes of the Universe, but somehow they did. Yeah. Every time I hear that song, I get a little thrill up my spine. (laughs) All right, so here's the poster, though, for the European release. All right. So, ooh, this is totally different. Right? This is, whoa, this is way more exciting. Okay, first of all, it's full color, my friends. And right in the middle, in red, it says Highlander. Right under it, there can be only one in yellow. Oh, it's amazing. There's a little sticker at the bottom that says fe- featuring original songs by Queen. Look at trying yeah. to sell it. I love it. And then there's Connor McLeod in the center of the screen. Dramatically head back, eyes closed, screaming his sword thrust forward. And behind him is the Kurgan. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It's so good. It's so good. Oh, and a backdrop of New York City, all mm-hmm. in lights. It's beautiful. Yeah. It it's one of those things where basically that documentary that we watched, Seduced by Argentina, they talk about that where they're just like, 20th Century Fox fucked us. And I didn't realize how much <laughs> until right? because I did watch that as well. And I'm like, how bad could it be? But I, that's pretty bad. It's a pretty big difference. It's like yeah. watching that'd be like going expecting to see like Psycho or something. It honestly, I keep on thinking of Firefly 
and and Fox and how they just totally botched the marketing for that show and and the release <sighs> and issues with Joss Whedon aside. Yeah. It's one of those things where again it's a really beloved cult property with a really devoted fan base even 15 years after it was released. And I do Actually, love almost Firefly. 20. Like, I do too. Again, Whedon aside and it makes me a little sad to think about it. <laughs> Right, <laughs> because it had so much potential. Yeah. Oh, it's so rough. It's rough to see. Yeah. What were your overall thoughts on the movie now that you've seen it? Because you hadn't seen it before this, correct? No, I had only seen the TV show, and and probably rightfully so, because that was much less <laughs> violent. I mean, much less graphically violent. They were still beheading a motherfucker every episode, but versus the film, which is like blood and like half a head, and wow, there goes the yeah. head. But I actually really liked the movie. It was adventurous. It was thrilling. It told a, a fairly cohesive and interesting storyline, which unfortunately had an ending. Bloop. Yeah. But it still took us on an emotional journey. Yeah. And I feel the same way. And it had all the camp that I love for the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And the special effects are just chef's kiss. Love it. There, there is something so wonderful <laughs> about the special effects from the 1980s because they're so earnest all the time. And, and at the same time, they look so cheesy by comparison now. <laughs> but you can tell they were trying so hard. It's almost like... A little kid who's just learning to finger paint and they walk up and they're like, I did this thing. It's so good. And you're like, it is really good. It's really good for where you're at. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Highlander is very much a quintessential 80s film to me. And there's both that nostalgia factor, but also it's a pretty tight little film. It doesn't really try to do anything too grandiose or too world building because I don't think they expected to really make the sequels that they wound up doing. Which speaking of which, we should briefly discuss the sequels. <laughs> like sure. I I feel like you can't have a Highlander discussion <laughs> without talking about the sequels. And honestly, the first time I ever heard of Highlander as a brand, really, was when I was yeah. visiting family in Texas and we were watching a Siskel and Ebert episode where they were thrashing Highlander 2. And <laughs> Dude, Siskel and Ebert, I'm sure hated this. This does not surprise me in the least. <laughs> I don't remember much about it. I just remember being like, oh, Sean Connery's in a movie. Oh, that's cool because my parents had raised me on all of the Sean Connery James Bond movies. Yeah. Casting. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. Why? Why? They had a French dude playing a Scottish guy and a Scottish guy playing a Spanish-Egyptian guy. It's I, I believe the label was a Hispaniola-Egyptian. Kind of. Oh. I think they kind of darkened up Sean Connery a little bit, too. I'm not sure. It felt that way. I was just hoping he had just been under the tanning beds, but no, I think you're right. Ugh. Highlander 2 was definitely the most infamous of the sequels. And I mean, a huge part of that is because it had such a batshit production and there have been so many different versions of it. It was so bad that Russell Mulcahy reportedly walked out of the film premiere after only 15 minutes. So there's this great documentary that you and I both watched on YouTube. It's split up into a bunch of parts, but it was a documentary they made for the special edition of Highlander 2. I think the third release of the movie that they put out because the first one was basically the bonding company for the film's investors took over the production and assembly of the movie due to the fact that Argentina, where they were filming and they had gone to Argentina because a, it was gorgeous, but B because it was supposedly going to be a third of the cost to make a movie there than it would elsewhere. 
Argentina's economy collapsed and went through hyperinflation. And as a result, everything just went haywire. But they went back years later and they not only recut the movie, but they refilmed or added in certain scenes, I think four or five years later. And then on top of that, they did the special edition a few years after that, where they redid the special effects. And I don't know. It's kind of funny because it's not a bad movie now. It's not terrible, I feel. It's an enjoyable film in its own way. But it's also funny where you watch that documentary and they're talking about the stuff that they're so proud of. Russell Mulcahy was talking about how proud he was of that love scene. I'm using this in quotes. Love scene between Virginia Mm -hmm. Madsen and and Christopher Lambert, where they just decided to do it up against the wall of an alley. Yeah, that's always an interesting choice to me. Like, you really cannot wait. Yeah, and and he was like, I thought that was a really hot scene. And I kind of sit there and I'm like, I I, I can't view this through the lens of a 20-something guy in the 1990s. I don't know what my interpretation of it would have been then, but watching it now, watching it for the first time when I was in my 20s in the in the early aughts, I just was like, this is weird and sort of dumb. And also, they don't really have a lot of chemistry, but okay. Hmm. Yeah, it just kind of happens. They're just like, oh, here you are. Yeah, right. I don't know. At the same time, it was cool to see they did all those really practical special effects. Yeah. They actually had them whipping around on the wires on like the, the weird flying skateboards and stuff. I thought that was cool. I thought that was neat, too. And how he was like, yeah, I actually got on top of the elevator. <laughs> he was yeah. super excited how he got on top of the elevator. <laughs> yeah. And then they basically just dropped it down. Like, that's wild. So how about Highlander 3? Uh, yeah, that's kind of where I am. I very forgettable in my book. I feel like you could wipe it from the timeline and no one would care. Really, it felt like a retread of the first movie but with a shittier villain and a way less interesting love story. Honestly, it was a bummer because Mario Van Peebles, the guy who plays that, the illusionist, I can't even remember his name. It was that forgettable. Yeah, no, I can't either. Mario Van Peebles is a really good actor and he's done a lot of really cool stuff. And it just, it felt like he was the NutraSweet version of the Kurgan. (laughs) I like that. Yes, yes. All the mustache twirling, none of the substance. Leaves a little bit of a weird taste in your mouth. Right. (laughs) Splenda Kurgan. (laughs) Moving on. Highlander Endgame. What I do like about this film is that in both the TV series as well as the film, there is the actual crossover. Connor shows up Mm -hmm. in Duncan's world and Duncan shows up in Connor's world. And there is that continuity which is good. And I do appreciate that because before I got into this, I assumed that the character was interchangeable and we were just seeing different actors, mm-hmm. a James Bond situation. And when I went back and realized like, oh no, he's his own character, they're blah, you know? Yeah. I don't know. I saw this in theaters because I loved the show <laughs> and I appreciated that it felt like an attempt to merge the movies and the series. And of the movies, I feel like this actually has the strongest action scenes. There's that bit <laughs> where Adrian Paul faces off against Donnie Yen. And I was like, that's got to be really cool to be able to sit there and show your kids much later in life. Hey, I got to do a martial arts scene with Donnie Yen and he didn't kill me in the movie. That's pretty dope. Yeah. Again, it felt underwhelming. It, it just wasn't all that interesting. And also, I spent years being mad at that movie because the trailer 
brought me into the theater expecting something way different than what we were going to get. Okay. And I don't know that I saw the trailer. It has it has a bunch of scenes with magic where Connor and Duncan jump through a portal and a sword gets what? thrown at Jacob Kell and he catches it in midair. <laughs> and then he does something else where he's holding a sphere where you see Connor's face screaming and then it shatters. What's with all this weird extra scene stuff in these trailers? I don't understand. Yeah, it turns out that this has this has never really been officially confirmed, but reading between the lines, yeah, it's been confirmed. They basically filmed extra scenes just to make it more appealing for people so they would show up to the theaters. Like <laughs> it, they filmed scenes, effectively they filmed scenes just for the trailer. And That's the director, when he was asked about it in Fearful Symmetry, he basically said, yeah, I know there was some stuff that they filmed for marketing afterwards, and I wasn't involved with that. And then I think it was Peter Davis that was asked about this for the book, and he basically said, oh, this is a really standard practice. People or Companies film stuff for, uh, for marketing purposes all the time, and that's where he left it. Oh, okay. So, Good to know. Yeah, so I was really grumpy about that. Yeah. But that said, I've softened a little since then. Do we even want to talk about the source? Because I feel like that's something that we shouldn't talk about in polite company. Uh, no, pass. Okay. <laughs> it happened? It happened. It was a thing that happened. That was going to be a trilogy. They were planning to make that into a trilogy oh. of movies. Ooh, rough times. Oh, it's real bad. I don't think you were able to watch this, but Highlander, The Search for Vengeance, it's the anime. No, I couldn't find it. Yeah, it's not available for streaming. And it really, it's really a bummer because it's actually pretty good. I'm not quite sure how to qualify it because it's not a, a live action movie and it doesn't star Duncan or Connor, but it's mm. a full length anime. It's a full length movie in its own right. It focuses on Colin McLeod, who he's an immortal who's technically part of the McLeod clan. He's born as a Roman Briton, and then he's adopted into the McLeod clan after he fights alongside them later on. They keep on doing this. They keep on going back to dystopian sci-fi futures, which I kind of like. <laughs> I love but a lot of the movie, their little hearts. <laughs> yeah, a lot of the story actually takes place in this post-apocalyptic 22nd century New York. And I haven't seen this in about a decade because it's not available on streaming. I don't have the DVD anymore. I really should pick it up before it goes out of print. But the movie fucking slaps. It was directed by Yoshiaki Kawajiri. He was really big in the 90s. He did Ninja Scroll and Vampire Hunter D Bloodlust. He's known for really cool looking movies that are also really violent. Mm. At the same time, like you look at his characters and you're like, oh yeah, no, they all look interchangeable because they're also similar one movie to another. But, oh, I see. But they're really cool. And the movie was written by David Abramowitz, who was the head writer for the TV show. So it felt like a pretty legit Highlander story. Honestly, if we had to talk about this and ask which of these movies or the sequels were our favorites, I would probably say The Search for Vengeance because I loved it so much. But since that wasn't a theatrical release, we'll exclude mm -hmm. that. And, and you didn't get to watch it. Of the sequels, which one did you enjoy the most? Mike, why don't you go first? Okay, I'm a little torn. I guess I enjoyed Endgame mainly because it feels like part of the, in quotes, real Highlander story. I guess it's the least terrible of the sequels. And it brought in my favorite characters. The final version of Highlander 2 is, I don't know, I don't hate it. 
it honestly feels like a cool dystopian cyberpunk story with some bizarre Highlander lore shoehorned in. <laughs> but at the same time, it's not the worst thing I've ever watched. How about you? Funny enough, I was going to say Highlander too, but maybe just a bit more so if it were its own standalone movie and not try to be a part of the Highlander franchise. Mm-hmm. The idea of the shield is super interesting, and I think they could have elaborated more on the lead up and the resolution of that issue rather than having to also make it about the immortals and their forever game. Yeah, I agree. How do you feel about moving on to the TV series? Oh, I am pro. Okay. I personally feel like this is the property that sucks all the air out of the room when you're talking about Highlander. Oh, no. Yeah, I mentioned that this is how I really got introduced to the brand. I started watching it in high school around season three, which was when it was really starting to get good. The first two seasons, I feel, were kind of when they were ironing out all the rough spots. But I wound up watching it through the end. So if you're listening to this podcast and you have never seen the show, Highlander the series ran for six seasons, which is a good length of time for any TV show. And it followed the adventures of Duncan, who was. Another member of the McLeod clan, he was a distant cousin of Connor. And the show bounced between Seacouver, which is a fictionalized version of Vancouver and Paris, and it basically retconned things so that the original movie didn't end with the quickening, but that the battle between the Kurgan and Connor was, it's implied it was the start of the gathering. That's my interpretation of it. That was what I got to. Yeah. And Christopher Lambert, he shows up in the pilot to help set things up and get them moving. But I think that's the only time we ever really see him on the show. Correct. He's really just an intro. He's in that first episode only. Yeah. You have rewatched it as have I. We haven't watched the entire series all the way through, but we've watched a lot of episodes over the past couple of weeks. Yes. (laughs) How do you feel it measures up today compared to that nostalgic view that we had before? had a lot of fun watching it actually it's definitely super cheesy i don't love all of the characters i watched a lot of the first season then i bounced around i think i did the top like 25 on a list that you sent me but duncan's just so codependent sometimes with his female (laughs) characters and it's like the one time that tessa goes on a hike by herself she gets kidnapped by an immortal and it's like oh my god she can't even go on a fucking hike are you joking me And the one time he goes to the store by himself, he gets kidnapped. And it's like, oh, come the fuck on, you guys. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like it generally holds up pretty well. It's a little uneven, but when it hits, it really hits. And it's a lot of fun. And considering that it was a relatively low-budget show on basic cable in the early to mid-90s, there's a lot of stuff that has aged way worse. Absolutely. It exceeded my expectations on the rewatch, for sure. Yeah, and I have to say that one really cool thing about Highlander is how it's got a really large female fan base, and I suspect that the show is really responsible for that. I would agree. There's a few reasons. (laughs) Are six of those reasons Duncan's abs, which we constantly got to see? Like... Ten of those reasons are all the times he gets surprised in a bathtub. I know I messaged you while I was watching them because I was like, Duncan got surprised in a bathtub again. (laughs) I don't remember which episode it was, but there's one where he is surprised while he's in a bathrobe and he's got 
it's not even tidy whities it's like a bikini brief. And, <laughs> and watching that, I was just sitting there going, thank you for this gift. Thank you. Yep. Thank you for this visual treat that you have given us in the middle of my very boring work day. It's also that there are such a wide variety of female characters, I would say. It's not yes. just the other female person he's seeing or whatever, the love interest. There are other female immortals, and they show yeah. up a lot more frequently than they do in the films. I can't recall if they have any female immortals in the films. <sighs> they do in Endgame. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I thought there, was, there were some in there, but that's tailing into... It's really only his wife. Yeah. Yeah, and the source had them too, but eh. I mean, yeah. Oh, they, yeah. <laughs> I will say, though, the show was pretty good about writing pretty strong female characters, I felt. Yeah. I, and we'll talk about Amanda in a little bit, but I have to say that I really liked how she was written and how Elizabeth Grayson played her through the original series and then her own afterwards. I don't know. I. What do you think is the sexiest thing about Duncan McCloud? I'm curious. He seems really, like, trustworthy, but, like, sexy mm. and trustworthy. It's like, he'd be the dude I called if some guys were fucking with me. Yeah. Yeah. I kept on thinking about how there's this Tumblr post that's been going around the internet regularly. And, and it's this discussion about which Disney men women find the sexiest. And guys always think it's Gaston. Oh, Lord, why? It's that male power fantasy thing where they're just like oh no like he he's like really charming and he's really muscly and the counter argument from women is usually a no gaston sucks and b we all like roger from 101 dalmatians it, oh yeah roger which <gasps> roger is very much my personal role model the dude's a talented musician he loves animals and he's got that that grade a snark where he literally is trolling the villain when she comes to his house <laughs> With a motherfucking trombone from upstairs. And oh. I think Duncan's a little like that. Like, he's cultured and he's worldly and he's got this wicked sense of humor. And he's also the type of dude who has no problem reciting poetry in public or making his partner breakfast in bed. Yeah, absolutely. So it just, it was something that came to mind while I was rewatching all this stuff. So, yeah. He's just a, like a wholesome guy. When right. He, he always has good intentions. That's actually what it feels like. He's always coming at things with good intentions. Yeah. And he's not perfect, but he's always trying to do the right thing, which I really appreciate. Yeah. What was your favorite episode? I went back and forth. I really like the Homeland episode. And like I said, I've really only watched a good chunk of most of season one, I would say, and then some kind of bounced around. Mm -hmm. But season four for episode one it was really sweet to see duncan take the obligatory trip back to his homeland to pay mm -hmm. respects yeah and it also had a good lesson in not judging a book by its cover as the main character assumes that duncan is just an ancestry tourist which was right. super interesting <laughs> she was super hating on him and i was like this is interesting <laughs> <laughs> instead of visiting what once was literally his home during yeah. his formative years so it was just such an a wild thing to see her be like, what are you doing near those graves? And he can't really be like, they were my parents. Yeah. <laughs> because you cannot even read them. They are so old. 
The funny thing is I didn't rewatch that episode during our, our refresher, mm. but I remember watching that episode when I was about 15 or so because it stuck out to me. Yeah, that was a yeah. good one. It's really good. And of course, Duncan, he always has a good intention. The whole reason he went back was because he figured out that somebody had been pilfering graves. Yeah. And he had to return what was in this grave, Duncan. Yeah, I know. He's making the rest of us look bad. So mine is, it's Unusual Suspects. It's from season six, which I feel is actually a pretty weak season overall. And it's this really silly one-off episode starring Roger Daltrey of The Who fame. He plays Hugh Fitzcairn which is a character that he shows up and plays a couple of times throughout the series. And at this point in time in the story, he was dead, but it's a flashback to the 19 teens or 1920s, 1920s, because it ends with the stock market crash, but it's a take on the British country house murder mystery genre. And it's really fun. And it was just this really refreshing moment of levity after what I felt are a run of really heavy and in my opinion not very good episodes the end of season five and the beginning of season six are all about duncan confronting this demon named aramon and it's weird and it's not very good and i really don't enjoy it this is all my opinion i'm sure that i'm (laughs) insulting some highlander fan who absolutely loves this but it's a fun episode in its own and then it's a good moment after one that i didn't really enjoy and so it's got that extra refreshing bonus I just, I want to note, it's really funny to me how intertwined Highlander has always been with rock and roll and music in general, because they had Mulcahy who did all these music videos and stuff. And then they kept on having musicians show up as guest stars. I think it was, there's a character named Xavier St. Cloud, I think, who was played by one of the guys from, again, I think, Fine Young Cannibals. Yeah, I think I actually watched that episode. I think he was using like nerve gas or something to kill people. And then. Yes, I did watch that episode. That was a wild one. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he shows up later on too. I can't remember. But anyway, I really appreciate that they gave Roger Daltrey of all people, this character, and he just really had fun with it and they kept bringing him back. He was a good character every episode he was in. One of my other favorites was the one where they had Mary Shelley. Yeah. And he was in that one too, I believe. I think so, yeah. No, it was, the series was really fun. And and I like that we can sit there and pull all these episodes just from memory that we really liked. Absolutely. So, season six, they were trying to find a new actress who could carry her own Highlander show. And so they tested out a bunch of different actresses in season six and gave them either really strong guest appearances or they were basically the main character for episodes but they wound up not going with any of them they went with elizabeth grayson and gave her the raven where she reprised her role as amanda did you watch any of that did you get a chance to i watched the first and the last episode of season one i can only find the first season is there only one season there's only one season it didn't get picked up for another one <laughs> then there you go. Then I could have only. Yeah. I know I was scratching my head. Where do I, where else do I find this? You well, and don't. it ends on a cliffhanger. <laughs> it ends. Yeah, exactly. With Nick That's why I was immortal. like, let's go. Yeah. Oh, see, I didn't quite finish it because I was hurriedly setting it up in the background. <laughs> yeah, it was fine. I thought Elizabeth Grayson is really charming in that role, but at the same time, there wasn't a lot of chemistry initially between Amanda and Nick. I felt at the very beginning. I agree. 
Yeah, not in the first episode. By the end of the season, it was there. And I think they were also, as is the case with most shows first seasons, they were trying really hard to figure out what they wanted to do. And so originally it was a cop show with an immortal, (laughs) which there are certainly worse pitches that I've heard. Yeah. Oh, I agree. But yeah, I was really sad that it didn't get to go further. I'm tempted to go back and watch all of these things. I may have to do a palate cleanse. Yeah, I know. Something different. (laughs) I may have to go back to my Marvel watching. On top of this, there was a Saturday morning cartoon called Highlander the Series, or Highlander the Animated Series, and it was set in the future. It's in a weird alternate timeline. It stars another McCloud. It's fine. It's a Saturday morning cartoon. (laughs) I didn't even care enough to really go back and watch it because I remember it not being that great. They did some interesting stuff. Like they brought Ramirez back, if I remember right. And then they also had a thing where instead of beheading other immortals, the main character had an ability where he could be voluntarily given their power and then they would Uh-oh. live. So he had all of their knowledge and power. And again, it's again in a dystopian future where another immortal has taken over the world. Wow. They just love their dystopian future. They really do. But yeah, it's fine. I think it's streaming on Amazon Prime. I was just so focused on everything else that I didn't get a chance to go and rewatch it. Huh. Good to know. We're going to go over all the other various pieces of media real quick. And then we've got one side tangent and then we're going to go through comic books. But I'm so excited. Books. Highlander wound up having a pretty substantial literary footprint. The original movie had the official novelization. There wasn't really anything after that until the show came out. And then the show had 10 novels and an anthology and an official behind the scenes kind of book called The Watcher's Guide. And it's full of essays and interviews and photos. And since then, there have been a couple of nonfiction books like Fearful Symmetry, which is about everything Highlander related. And it's almost like a textbook, but it's pretty Mm. good. And then there's also A Kind of Magic, which is more focused on making of the original movie. And those are both actually really good. I like them a lot. They were really easy to read. There were audio plays, which I keep on forgetting audio plays are a thing at this point. Mm. But it's by this company called Big Finish in the UK. They do tie-in audio dramas for television properties. Most famously, they do Doctor Who. They wound up doing two seasons of audio plays. The first had Adrian Paul reprise his role as Duncan, and they take place after the series ended and then also after the events of Endgame. You can't really find them anymore because they just the, the license expired, so they aren't selling them, as far as I'm aware. That's super interesting, though. Dang. Yeah, and then the second season focuses on the Four Horsemen Immortals. Remember them? Okay. Yeah, I sure do. Yeah, because we were talking about this a little bit, but it was all about Mythos and the other guys that, that he hung out with when he was effectively a comic book villain who would have, if had he had a mustache to twirl, he would have done it. So quickly, yes. I thought that was really interesting. There were a couple of people in the Highlander Heart group who talked about it, and they seemed to really like him. I can't comment, but it was really neat. Games. This is the one that's really interesting. Highlander actually has been turned into a number of games over the years. There's a couple of tabletop games we're going to breeze through. So there was two different card games and a board game. One of the card games was released back in the 90s. It was a collectible card game, and this was right when Magic the Gathering was really hot and everybody was trying to get in on that action. And then recently there's a new one called Highlander the Duel, and it's a deck-building game where you play as Connor or the Kurgan going up against each other. 
And just a couple of years ago, there was a board game that got kickstarted. It was in 2018, and it's this fast-paced game for two to six players. The reviews across the web are pretty positive. And again, it's one of those things where it's immortals battling for that mysterious prize. Yeah. But it's cool. <laughs> nice. I'm actually pretty surprised we never got like a tabletop RPG because they are not precious about applying the license for Highlander to stuff. I'm amazed that nobody went to them and said, hey, we can make this cool historical RPG where we sort of start having players wake up and then they have flashbacks or whatever. And Yeah. Oh, that would have been cool. Yeah. Right. But yeah, we never got anything like that, which I was really, I actually, that was the one thing I expected and was surprised to see that we never got. Okay. So we're going to go on a mini tangent with video games, even though they aren't technically related to comics. The first game for Highlander was a 1986 tie-in release for home computers. It was a really simple fighting title. It wasn't well-received. It was apparently pretty bad. So after that, the animated series had a tie-in called Highlander Last of the McClouds. It was released on the Atari Jaguar CD console. If you remember that, do you remember the Atari Jaguar? Oh my God. No. Okay. I don't. <laughs> it kind of got lost in the shuffle in the early to mid-90s of all the different consoles that were coming out. But you can find footage of this on YouTube, and it's one of those early 3D games, and so it got a lot of praise for its exploration elements and animated video sequences, but it also got a lot of criticism for its controls and combat. After that, there was actually going to be an MMO called Highlander the Gathering, and it was in development by a French studio called Callisto Entertainment, which was honestly weird because Callisto's catalog up until now were mostly middling single-player games. They'd gotten famous for a series called Nightmare Creatures, but they also did a Fifth Element racing game on PS2 that I had and was actually pretty fun. Anyway, Callisto went bankrupt before the MMO could come out, and none of the folks who... Yeah, that's video games. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. So they went bankrupt, the MMO hadn't come out yet, and the folks who wound up with the rights afterwards just decided to kill the project. There's one other game that's become the source of a lot of speculation and it's only known as highlander the game it basically came about because davis panzer productions that's the the guys who own the rights to highlander and sci which was this holding company that owned a bunch of video game groups they decided to ink a deal to make a highlander game they announced that they'd basically done a partnership back in like 2004 2005 And at the time, SCI owned Eidos, who was the publisher that gave us Tomb Raider. So they were a pretty big name. The game itself was formally announced by Eidos in 2008, and the development was being handled by another French developer called Widescreen Games. It was going to be an action role-playing game. It would star a new immortal named Owen McLeod. The story was going to be written again by David Abramowitz and... That added some serious legitimacy to the project for fans. Actually, why don't you read the summary? Would love to. My pleasure. Summary. Owen is captured and enslaved by Romans who force him to compete as a gladiator. During this time, Owen dies only to come back to life. Mythos, the oldest living immortal, approaches Owen to be his mentor. He teaches Owen about the game and how he and other immortals can only be slain by beheading. As with other immortal McClouds, 
Owen is pursued throughout his life by a nemesis. This enemy proves to be extremely powerful, one that Owen is unable to defeat. Owen learns of a magical stone, fragments of which are scattered all over the world. Throughout the game, Owen embarks upon a quest to recover these fragments and restore the stone in an attempt to gain the power to overcome his foe. (laughs) So dramatic. I love it. What's Highlander without any drama? (laughs) But it sounds rad, right? Oh, it sounds amazing. The game was announced with a trailer in 2008 that really only showed some of the environments from different eras, and then it ended with an image of Owen, but it looked promising. And then there wasn't much else. After a couple of years of pretty much nothing but radio silence, Eidos wound up canceling the game. And that's where a lot of the speculation has started. There's not a lot of information on Highlander the game. I keep waiting for one of those gaming history YouTubers to get a hold of an old dev kit and then do a video with a build, but that hasn't happened yet. So really it's all kind of speculation and wishful thinking about what could have been. And it also seems like some of the details are getting muddied as time goes on. Like Fearful Symmetry talks about the game a bit, but they have this segment. And again, I want you to read this. Sure, sure. The game was so far along in its development stages that segments, including backdrops and some of the gameplay options, were presented at a Highlander Worldwide event in Los Angeles 2006 and got a very positive reaction. The beautifully rendered backdrops were almost movie quality and included the likes of Pompeii, a dark forest in the Highlands, New York, and Japan as gameplay locations and introduced us to another McLeod, Owen. The same surname, but a much earlier vintage. Yeah. So I think Mosby is a little overly enthusiastic about all this. And this is because I think Mosby doesn't have much familiarity with how game development works. It sounds like they had concept art on display and were discussing gameplay rather than showcasing a build of the game. Concept art and design discussions are things that happen very early in game development. But if you're an outsider looking in, this stuff could easily be interpreted as things being much further along than they were. Ah. Now, that said, I did work in video games for almost a decade, and a few of my coworkers were actually involved with Highlander the game. What? Every one of them over the years has told me the cancellation was a mercy killing. Basically, and again, this is from multiple sources who I'm not going to name or identify because I don't want to make things awkward for them. No, Uh, it's fine. But basically, the game was garbage. It's not really surprising to hear because widescreen never really made a good game. The best reception that any of their titles got was just kind of mixed. But earlier this week, I actually called one of my friends who'd been attached to the project because I wanted to get more information about this game before we record it. And to get you a new shovel, you just dug so deep for this. (laughs) With both hands. But (laughs) they confirmed what I'd been hearing from other people. The gameplay itself wasn't just bad, it was boring. The biggest problem was it didn't know what kind of a game it wanted to be. Basically, it was trying to do everything all at once. 
there were a bunch of traversal elements, which didn't really make a lot of sense. Like, why would you climb a Manhattan skyscraper when you're a roided out dude with a sword? Couldn't yeah. you just take the elevator or, I don't know, the stairs? <laughs> there was going to be a bunch of magic elements in the gameplay, which isn't really... That's not really a thing in Highlander. There's that fantasy element because we're talking about immortals who can't die unless you cut off their heads. But generally, magic isn't a part of the accepted canon. And then the combat, they were aiming to do something like God of War, which was really big at the time, but it wasn't great. My friend also pointed out that Owen looked like a bodybuilder, but his fashion sense was from that industrial metal scene of the late 90s, which neither of those things really fits with the Highlander aesthetic. Because Adrian Paul was arguably the most in shape of the Highlander actors. But even that was, he was a dude who was like, yeah, I could achieve that if I was really good about my diet and then just worked out aggressively, but not like Hugh Jackman does for, for his Wolverine roles. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to send you a screenshot of what Owen looked like in the key art that they had for the initial title. <laughs> what? It looks like Chris Angel. It does, right? And they're trying to recreate that iconic pose of the quickening from the first movie that Connor does at the very end where he's getting raised up and by the rails of lightning or the wires of lightning. Yeah. No, uh, I, I get what they were trying to do. <laughs> yeah. What, I want to know what the fuck is up with those weird straps with rings that are going down his legs. I don't really know. I was trying to figure that out myself. So just... So that everyone can really get the picture that we're getting here. And I, you'll, you might understand why it's taken me so long to describe it. I had to take it all in first. Yeah, it's a ride. <laughs> it's all very monochromatic. And the background is, of course, a cut of the Statue of Liberty. The backdrop of parts of New York that I'm sure aren't even next to each other, which is always funny. <laughs> and then what is this? Is this the new guy or is this supposed to be Duncan? Yeah, is this, this, is, Duncan? this is the new guy. Dolan. This is the new guy. Yeah, it's Owen. And then Connor and Duncan were supposed to appear, supposedly. I know Peter Wingfield was recording his lines for Mythos. Well, if they haven't killed off Mythos, that makes sense. And I don't know in the series if they have. Yeah. And maybe Duncan makes sense uh, if he hasn't died yet. But Yeah, they can't kill off Mythos. Mythos was my first gay crush. Yeah, he's slightly problematic in a couple episodes, but he's a great character overall. Yeah. But he's very Chris Angel. He's wearing like a trench coat and that has to be some sort of a lace undershirt or something. And he's got like weirdly like it's almost like baggy leather pants. Yes. Which cannot be comfortable. It's doing this weird pooching thing in the front. Yeah. And then I think I saw another screenshot where it looks like he's wearing skater shoes. You can see that these are like tennis shoes as well. Oh, fans off the wall, man. Just once I want to see a McLeod in the movies with a good fashion sense. Yeah. I mentioned that I wanted to cosplay as Duncan, which overall would be a great idea. But then I was looking <laughs> through his outfits and I'm like, what do I wear? Do I wear this weird white tank top with these like acid wash jeans and a oh, belt? God. Or is this the one where I'm wearing like five shirts and a long jacket? Is it that day? <laughs> you know, he looks like that guy Canis. From the leader of the pack episode. Yes. Yes, he does. He has the lace shirt and everything. And the, the dog collar. Oh my God. <laughs> it was so funny. I told you, I think it was trying to be edgy. <laughs> yeah. 
And instead it comes off really queer coded. Really does though. Yeah. I know. My little queer brain was like, bling. Yeah. It, It feels like they weren't really getting the essence of what Highlander actually was and who these guys were. Because usually the Highlander characters are a little bit more believable and ordinary. Because that's the whole idea is that they're walking among us and we have no idea unless they tell us. Okay, on top of all this, so remember how I mentioned that trailer was just showcasing environments for the game? Yeah. There was a reason for that. The reason was that they couldn't get the character models to work. Oh. So the shot of Owen at the end, it's actually just animated key art, which it's the same it's the same <laughs> art that you just saw. It's that image, it was just slightly animated. And <laughs> And then They released a couple of screenshots for the game, but apparently they were really heavily photoshopped, well beyond industry standards. So it was one of those things where this was a turd, and it needed to be flushed, and it finally did. But widescreen went under about a year after the game was formally announced. They were working on another big project, and apparently that got taken away. And as a result, it just caused the studio to implode. By this point in time, Square Enix, the guys who do all the Final Fantasy games, had bought Eidos. And they formally canceled it. We're not sure why exactly. My guess is that it was probably they just looked at the cost it would take to finish this game and then the amount that it would need to sell in order to be profitable or to meet their sales expectations for it. And they just thought it wasn't worth it. But yeah, my friend actually said they were embarrassed to work on it and they would have been fine even if it had been an average game. But it was just bad. Even one of those kind of middling average games, I think that would have been fine. That would have lived up to the Highlander bar. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, there's that Highlander game that Spark Unlimited was working on. I never even heard a whisper about this until we watched that episode of Highlander Heart focusing on video games. And they brought Craig Allen on to talk about the project. Based on what we know now, I think this might be why Square Enix was holding onto the rights for another year after they shut down Highlander the game, just because they had this other title theoretically in development or very early development. Based on the footage that they have, it looks like they had at least done enough development work to put together a vertical slice that they could show for pitch purposes and at conventions. But I thought it was really promising looking overall. What did you think? I thought it did look really interesting, the the gameplay itself. I did like the idea of having a female Highlander. Yeah. Um, that being said, <laughs> they had this whole concept about what Craig Allen was calling beautiful damage. Yeah. And it was this whole thing about, oh, it was a first female Highlander and her looks go when she gets damaged and that's her whole motivation is to stay pretty. And I just, that gave me a huge headache. <laughs> and it of course was super male gazy. I mean, the game itself seemed that way. It was weird because I would love to see women in Highlander being built a little bit more like warriors, like a little bit more muscly, yes. which would be in keeping with people who battle across the centuries. They don't need to be super jacked like the Amazons in Wonder Woman, but making them look like stick thin suicide girl punk rock chick from the late aughts didn't quite gel with me. I understood what he was talking about, though, because that was a thing where they were starting to do permanent cosmetic damage in video games. That was something that was really big in the Batman Arkham games. Every Mm -hmm. time that you got knocked out, you'd come back and you'd have a little bit more of your outfit chipped apart. 
So after a while, Batman's looking pretty ragged and you realize maybe I'm not as good at this game as I think I am. (laughs) Yeah. And the concept itself is really interesting. It just, I guess, was the way it was phrased by this person. It very much was he was so proud of the fact that it was the first Highlander female in a video game. And then everything was just like so incredibly sexist. I was excited that I wasn't. (laughs) We're also viewing it with the lens of 2021 at this point. At that time, that was before they had relaunched Tomb Raider in 2013, 2014, where they made her much more realistic. She was still very fit, but she wasn't the Lara Croft that had generated a lot of criticism. I think possibly, I don't know, but I hope that it would have been marketed a bit differently if it had been done today. That said, we also don't know exactly what it would look like as a final product. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. it's. It, I agree. It's a little bit problematic viewed through the current lens. At the same time, like a lot of the Highlander properties, when it was being done, I think it was kind of just par for the course. Mm, yeah, fair enough. But I, I did like the idea of having a female Highlander and having her have a whole story regardless of if whether it's the first one to be completely tragedy laden <laughs> which was the other comment like uh. let's make her experience a ton of loss because she's female and experiences empathy unlike the male character i really didn't like that actually i thought that was i mean the, the whole thing where they were saying we wanted to focus on lifetimes of tragedy as opposed to enjoying multiple lives and i'm like that's the whole purpose of highlander that's what i really like is when you sit there and you watch them having fun and doing all this interesting stuff women aren't allowed to have fun mike (laughs) apparently (laughs) we just have to have lives full of tragedy and pining for people that we've lost in our lives well yeah and we all know that that dudes don't have feelings so we just you know get to go on and enjoy things that does suck that you they don't give men the ability to have that capacity or give them the the credit to have that capacity i will say i am sorry that this one didn't get further along the development stages because it certainly seemed like it had a lot more promise than the title that was canceled right before it yes the gameplay itself looked more interesting it looked more complex it looked easier to navigate what they were showing us was really intense i really liked that whole idea of being able to view the environments in two different eras. It reminded me a lot of another Eidos game called Legacy of Cain Soul Reaver, where there was a spiritual mm. world and then a physical world, and you could flip back and forth between them, which was kind of cool. Oh, that's neat. Yeah, I dug that. I liked the idea of exploring the same environment in two different eras. I thought that was really neat. Yeah. Let's move on to comics. Sounds great. <laughs> okay, so... I'm curious, when do you think Highlander got big enough to actually get a comic book? I don't know, maybe late 90s? 2006. Wow, that's later than I had expected. Yeah, there wasn't a comic adaptation of the movie when it came out, which is weird. There wasn't one here in the States. Highlander Heart in their YouTube podcast noted there was a series of five newspaper comic strips that were published as part of a marketing promotion. The hosts weren't entirely certain if they're exclusive to Europe or not. I don't know. I haven't been able to really find much reference to it. After the movie came out, though, there was a two-part 
comic adaptation in Argentina. It was published through El Tony Toto Color and El Tony Super Color. They were sibling comic anthology magazines. And here's the weird twist. It looks like this was an unlicensed adaptation. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So now we're going to take another side tangent. The, the important thing that you need to know is that Argentina had just come out of a brutal military dictatorship that came about as part of Operation Condor, which is this horrific program the United States was involved in. And it isn't really taught about in high school history. At least it wasn't when I was going through high school. And I went to a pretty good one. Did you ever learn about that? I'm curious. No, I did not. Okay. I'm giving you an extremely TLDR read of this. But basically, this was a program in the 70s and 80s when the U.S. backed military dictatorships across South America. So our country helped these groups kidnap, torture, rape, murder thousands of political opponents. Like Argentina was especially brutal. There were literally death squads hunting down political dissidents across the country. It was a really horrific time. I want you to read the summary of what was going on during that time, actually. Give me the really fun stuff I see. Sorry. <laughs> no, you're good. It is estimated that between 9,000 and 30,000, that's a huge span. I know. It's such a, a margin of error. I don't understand. Lack of record taking will get you there quick, I think. I'm going to start over, but we will yeah. we'll leave that in. It is estimated that between 9,000 and 30,000 people were killed or disappeared, many of whom were impossible to formally report due to the nature of state terrorism. The primary target, like in many other South American countries participating in Operation Condor, were communist guerrillas and sympathizers. But the target of Operation Condor also included students, militants, trade unionists, writers, journalists, I don't love this, artists, and any other citizens suspected of being left-wing activists. Will take me the goddamn way away. Right. <laughs> including... Peronist gorillas. Oh, I don't love that. No, it's really <sighs> awful. And based on that list of targets, it's not surprising that there was a lot of media suppression during this time. Democracy returned to the country in 83, and there was this explosion of art across the mediums. Argentine comics saw this Renaissance period. A lot of them, though, weren't really licensed. And let's be honest, it's not like there's an internet where IP owners could monitor stuff like this and shut it down when they learned about it. There was also this drastic comics increase in the area due to creators self-publishing zines because the 80s was the decade where personal computers suddenly became commonplace and all of a sudden people could format and edit and print their own stuff. I'm doing some armchair speculation right now, but my guess is that IP and copyright law wasn't really a priority for the newly restored democratic government, especially in a market that was so suddenly flooded. Mm. Back to the comic. And I'm sorry that we went down this dark side road, but it's important to have that context. Yeah, set the stage. So the comic was written by Hector Alba, and it was illustrated by Ruben Marigi. It's a pretty straightforward adaptation of the movie's script, though Alba took some liberties with the story. Like, he made the Kurgan the actual son of the devil. Yeah, that was an interesting spin. Yeah, and you look at the art, and they were clearly trying to base it on what they saw in the movie, but it's a little loose and rushed. Mm -hmm. The information about this comic is incredibly sparse. I found a reference to it in Fearful Symmetry, which it implies that the comic's a legit adaptation, and it also says that it's an Italian comic. 
So I'm not sure what his sources were for this, but hmm. there's no trace of the comic online. I wound up stumbling across it on a site that was dedicated to translating non-English James Bond comics. It's called Comics Royale. The guy behind the site, his name is Clinton Rawls, and he's a college professor who specializes in film appreciation and history. So I, I reached out to him on Facebook, and we wound up chatting for a while, and he told me that he basically stumbled across the Highlander issues of El Tony by accident. Exactly when the first issue came out isn't really certain. Fearful Symmetry says it was released in 86 as a promotional item. There's no source cited for that. Clinton has a copy of the second issue, and he said it was from 1987, which lends credence to the theory that it was an unlicensed product created after some folks had viewed the movie, as opposed to a licensed comic that was based on the movie's script and, and say, set photos ahead of release. And then Clinton told me this, and I'm giving you something else to read that's actually a lot more fun than what we just went over. So, oh, perfect. It's a palate cleanser. <laughs> I once found a Rambo 3 adaptation by the same publisher. It had some fun splash pages, and so I sent them to author David Morrell, Rambo's quote-unquote father, as he refers to himself. He seemed surprised and said that he gave no permission for Rambo comics to be written. He thanked me for sending him the art, but said that the comic was made illegally. Woo! <laughs> Someone wasn't happy to receive that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I feel like if you're making Rambo money, maybe you'd be okay with some. I'd like to think that if I ever made it that big, I would be a little bit more forgiving with people doing stuff like that. But I don't yeah. know. I know it's this weird coincidence, but I also thought it was really interesting how Argentina was responsible for the first Highlander comic, even if it's probably not an official product. And then later on wound up being responsible for Highlander 2. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Which, that was an exciting thing, talking about all the supplies they had to send up and one safety pin under mm -hmm. lock and key. <laughs> We're going to fast forward to 2006, which is when we get Dynamite's run. Dynamite was still a publisher in its infancy. It had only been around for about a year or so. And so they were just putting out a ton of licensed books, like Battlestar Galactica, Army of Darkness, Red Sonia, and somehow they got the license to Highlander. So all of the Dynamite books are written by Brandon Jerwa, and he'd previously been doing G.I. Joe books before this. The first series, the main series, the longest of the series, it's 12 issues. Well, I think it's 13, actually, because there's a zero issue as well. Yeah, it is zero. It's one overall meta plot but it's broken into a couple of different big arcs. It starts off immediately after the movie, takes the TV show's approach to the mythology where Connor did defeat the Kurgan, but there wasn't that, it wasn't that final battle. There's still other mortals around competing for the prize. And I really enjoyed these different arcs where it was a Connor and other immortal friends. It was like the super immortal friends, immortal super friends. Yeah. Dealing with a super soldier cult of the Kurgan's followers where somehow he wound up basically creating a bunch of Captain America lights in Russia in the 60s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then after that, there's the whole thing where Connor is struggling to keep the Kurgan's personality from overwhelming him. And then finally, the last arc was Duncan after the events of Endgame dealing with both the cults and then also he's haunted by Connor in the same way. I thought that these were way stronger sequel storylines than the movies. 
I agree. I think it really draws into especially the idea of one of the personalities or even the existence of the other personalities within each of the immortals, because we have the understanding that they're getting something out of this, that they're Mm -hmm. getting at least some sort of knowledge or power, but we're never told what type of power. It's not like they're stronger unless they work out. Other than being immortal, what power are they getting? That's really not necessarily explained, but it's also not explained what goes on with everyone that you have killed. What are you taking on? What is that? So I liked the continuation of that and the idea that there could be this seed that just gets bigger and bigger as you go on. Yeah, I agree. I thought it took some really cool ideas and and ran with them. So after that, there were a couple of other miniseries. There was Highlander Way of the Sword, which acts as a direct prequel to the original film. And then there's the final Dynamite comic, which is like a two-issue miniseries. And that's Highlander Origins Kurrigan, which it fleshes out the franchise's best-known villain. It's fine. I view it the same way that I view that last Alien movie that came out, where I'm like, I don't care what the official canon origin for this is, because it's not going to be as cool as anything that I can imagine. That's sometimes the problem with these things. They get a buildup that they just cannot live up to. Yeah. But overall, I thought the Dynamite comics were really solid, and they're a lot of fun. You can actually buy the individual issues really cheap. The collected editions are weirdly expensive, though. And you can't buy them digitally anymore, I don't think, because they, again, the license has gone to a different publisher. If you're in the market for some solid Highlander stories, and you've already watched all the movies and the TV shows, the comics are pretty good, especially the Dynamite ones. Yeah, I enjoyed them. Yeah. Are you ready to talk about Highlander 3030? I'm so excited, yeah. Highlander 3030. When I was learning about Highlander 3030, that was when I had the realization that it's not really a Highlander product, unless there's been a bunch of behind-the-scenes production drama. That seems to be what's tracking at this point in time, based on the documentary we watched. This was another comic that I didn't know about until I was doing some serious digging into this whole topic. Again, it's one of those things that's got a really quick blurb and fearful symmetry. It's barely referenced around the web. Bleeding Cool still has the review for when they got sent a digital copy to check out and they totally shit all over it. They were mean. Damn. Yeah. So when I was doing the digging, I found out the publisher Emerald Star Comics was a small indie publisher out of Oklahoma. It looks like they were only distributing the comic on digital platforms like Comixology and Drive-Thru Comics. And then they Mm -hmm. had eventual plans for physical distribution, but that never happened, as far as I can tell, because they had a, one of the last posts on their Facebook page is a post talking about how they didn't get picked up by Diamond Distributors for distribution for comic shops and stuff. Mm. But this was a comic that was released in 2015, and it's basically Duncan McLeod in the way far future. And they got support from the Highlander brand. They got some actual shout outs from the Highlander Facebook group. They had a competition where the fan who got the most votes was going to get to appear in the second or third issue. Folks were really jazzed about this ahead of its release. And then it came out and the fan reaction to this book was not kind. And that was a shame. It was created by some very passionate fans who decided to swing for the fences and they wound up landing the license in the most unlikely of ways. I actually wound up 
tracking down the book's co-writer, Matt Kelly, over the weekend. And he told me this wild story about how a publisher in the middle of nowhere wound up getting the license to Highlander. So eventually the publisher pulled me aside on a phone call and was like, hey, look, we've got the Highlander license. And I was like, wait, wait, how, how did that happen? Do you know? So the story that he told me was that he reached out to them on LinkedIn. So <laughs> as you may or may not know, the company that owns the rights to Highlander, it's not Paramount. It's not Warner Brothers. It's sort of like a mom and pop. It's uh, it's Davis Panzer Productions, right? Davis Panzer Productions. And they've just held on to it all these years. And he reached out to them on LinkedIn. And they were between licensees of the comic book. And he pitched a, a wacky idea to them. And they, they were like, yeah, go for it. Let's do it. Okay. Like, that's wild. So that's my hat. It, 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 I, I couldn't make it up. And there's a couple other licensees that he was pursuing. But Highlander, to me, was the big fish because I was a massive, still am, massive Highlander fan. I discovered it at just the right time. I was like 15 when I just, you know, I first started watching Highlander and I watched the movie. I thought it was amazing. It was like the first DVD I ever bought. I was staying up late to watch the show. And so he was like, hey, you want to be the editor on this? I'm like, yeah. And then eventually he's like, you could be my co-writer because I'm so busy. I can't even write this thing. I was like, of course. How did you feel about it, by the way, basically, that they just reached out to them on LinkedIn and got it? To me, that is just the power of asking. Yeah. We talked about that earlier. I guess you just have to ask the question. And the Mm -hmm. worst that can happen is they say no. Yeah, they tell you to hit the bricks. Yeah. So Matt gave us a digital copy of the first issue to read through since it's not commercially available after Emerald Star shutting down. Thanks, Matt. Yeah. Thank you, Matt Kelly, friend of the podcast. Yeah, it was uh, it was good. I actually really enjoyed it. And I did especially too. like <laughs> it. Did, I was so bummed when it was like, oh, there was only one issue. I'm like, why? I know we're going this whole like dystopian whatever. But yeah, this was such a different swing of it than we've seen. The other ones went very dystopian New York and a dystopian that's a future that's near enough in our future to be pretty scary but distant enough that it's not quite here yet this one was like so distant in the future that we weren't all yeah. even in the same plane i mean it just yeah and i thought it was an interesting swing i loved the concept yeah i thought it was a fun story what did you think of the art <sighs> I definitely related to some of those wonky face pictures. I just was <laughs> <laughs> some of them look pained to exist, yes. and I'm like, I feel you. I get you at a deep level. So yeah. It was a little rough. Yeah, and that's what people criticize the most about it. And as Matt pointed out, this is because Dan Goodfellow, the artist, was actually forced to draw it in a totally different style than his own. We had a really cool artist who had this really awesome kind of scratchy European style. It felt like you were mm-hmm. reading like something out of, he was uh, a Brit, I believe, something out of 2000 AD. It kind of had that smell to it and it was so cool. And so we were in the midst of production of it and the artist got sick and he couldn't do it. Oh, man. Was that the artist who did the initial cover of that issue that you sent me? No, that was a different artist. That was Robert Norton. And he was great. Like, 
if we had more time, Robert, I think, should have been the main artist on the book. But our artist dropped out, and the publisher called the next name that he had on the list and said, hey, can you fill in for the artist that dropped out? And he went to Davis Panzer and said, this is the deal. And they said, it needs to look like the pitch you sent us. We don't want it to look like anything else. So this poor guy had to draw the whole first issue and redraw all the pages that had already been drawn, but in someone else's style. Oh, man. And that's, you know, that's not cool. So he was mimicking someone else who had a very rough looking style. And it was this other artist's own mm-hmm. thing. And this poor fellow was stuck trying to do this rough style, but it just looked rough and it just wasn't gelling. But that's, that's what was asked. After hearing that, I have to say that really sucks. That's not great. I don't understand why Davis Panzer wouldn't let them do it in a new art style, especially if they could show the art style of Dan's, but. Clearly someone who didn't understand art at a core level, just expecting an artist to replicate a style. Yeah. Especially a comic book artist, you get used to a certain way of drawing, of doing things, and having to be forced into a mold that you don't necessarily fit into, it's not going to work. No. But it just seems like a not very well thought out decision on their part. Yeah, I agree. And the other thing is that Matt revealed that everyone who was working on stuff at Emerald Star They were basically working for free. The expected compensation would have come on the back end if the books wound up taking off. And on top of that, the license fee for Highlander and the lack of profit on the project, basically, that was what killed the imprint. Hmm. That said, even though the book is more infamous than it's liked, Matt was still really glad that his name's on something Highlander associated just because he loves the property so much. I am proud of the fact that I was able to brush up against something that meant a lot to me. And those high school years, when you discover something and you're like, this is awesome, wow, and you just see the potential in it, to be able to leave a mark on it in some degree is definitely worthwhile. And I'm really happy that that I was able to put some words in Duncan's mouth, even if issue one wasn't the one that I worked too terribly on, but I did get the right issue too. And it was drawn, just never published. So maybe someday... I'll put it on a website somewhere and uh, let people enjoy it. But um, yeah. I would be in the same position that he is, where it wouldn't matter that what I put out wasn't the hit that I'd hoped for. The fact that I got to write something on a property that meant so much to me would have been more than enough. And I think he's got a really good perspective on that. Personally, I still can't believe that he was willing to talk to me. I'm really hoping that he releases that issue too someday, you know, because he talked about the plot with me and you heard what he had planned. Mm-hmm. And it sounds bonkers, but in the best kind of way. Yes. Yes. So I don't want to spoil the details for it here on the podcast, just in case he doesn't end up sharing it with fans eventually. And I think that would be really fun for them to discover everything organically. <laughs> thought it was really rad. And I think that's where we're going to leave Highlander 3030. It was something really ambitious that was planned out by really passionate fans. And it didn't wind up working out, but I liked it a lot more than I expected to. Finally, we got Highlander American Dream, which came out in 2017 from IDW. Do you want to describe this one? Sure. Yeah. Okay. 
Well, in this one, we follow Connor McCloud back and forth through, of course, because they're always doing the time jumps Mm -hmm. between the Civil War, the 1950s and the 1980s. Mm-hmm. As he deals with the toils of being an immortal during a time of the gathering, you know, the same story. Yeah. Trying to both become the victor of the immortal's deadly game, as well as save those he loves. I like this one. Rachel's in this one a lot more. And at different points in her life, mm-hmm. which was great. Yeah, I feel like the comics actually served Rachel a lot better than the movies. Agreed. She's just kind of a blip on the radar. And I honestly, you can forget she's there quite easily. And I did a few times. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Rachel. Connor's weird adopted son is way more important in Highlander 3. Like and gets more screen time than Rachel does in all the other movies. Uh, Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I (laughs) I felt it was really different than a lot of the stuff. The best way I could describe it is that it felt like the miniseries was doing an episode of the TV show, but starring Connor. It was a relatively small kind of self-contained story. I liked the whole thing with the immortal being a serial killer. I thought that was kind of cool. And then he has his friend who's a priest who shows up. So he's got the cameo appearance, but it was fine. It was solid. I liked it. Yeah, I liked it too. Yeah. And that's the last that we've seen of the Highlander comics, at least for the time being. Hey, Mike, what's next for Highlander? I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) No, actually, that's a good question. There's still an incredibly passionate community around the brand, even after all this time. I wound up joining the Highlander Heart Facebook community, which is several thousand members, and I'm really floored at how strong it is. There's constant posts within it, and based on what I've seen, it's just this wonderful lack of toxicity there, too. Like, you and I have been part of other geek groups that are really big, and they're just awful. Like, after a while, I keep... I, like you and I left that one recently. I where, was going to say subsequently left <laughs> where it was people that were just so mean to each other because they were doing a lot of gatekeeping over who the real fans were. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've said my spiel. <laughs> just let people like things. Yeah, right. This group is people who are constantly showing off their merchandise and displays or things that remind them of the brand or what they'd like to see if it comes back. And. I'm not sure who's overseeing the Highlander brand now because both Bill Panzer and Peter Davis have died. Panzer Mm. wound up passing in 2007 in a weird freak ice skating accident. He basically fell and hit his head and that did him in. And then Davis died in his sleep back in February. He was 79. He was an old man. Davis's son, Josh, has stepped in to handle the producer duties on the new movie that they're making at Lionsgate. And speaking of the new movie... There's been a reboot or a remake of the original in development since 2008. It's wound up bouncing around a lot around Hollywood for a while, but Chad Stahelski, he's the guy who directed all three John Wick movies, if you saw them. Oh, uh, I've seen the first one, yes. Yeah, they're all really good. They're a lot of fun. Mm. Like, the action sequences only get stronger after the first one. The first one's action sequences are mind-blowing. So he signed on to that project in 2016, and then... In June 2020, he was still attached, and he said the movie is in heavy development, I believe was his wording. They haven't cast the main character, but David Batista, who played Drax the Destroyer, was announced to play the Kurgan. That was back in 2015, so I'm not sure if he's still going to be in the movie, but I'm hoping, because I really Mm -hmm. like him. Yeah. Who would you cast as Connor, or the Connor stand-in? Oh, who would I cast? You know what would be really funny? Hmm is to put Channing Tatum 
<laughs> Good. I just think that would be great, but then spin it funny. Yeah. And we're back to Magic Mike. <laughs> we are. We sure are. I think you may have planted that seed. I'm down with I'm down with Channing Tatum. I can see that. What about you? Who would you choose though? I have to say I have a deep and abiding love for Chris Pine. And Okay. Yes, we keep bringing up Mr. Pine on this yeah. podcast. Chris Pine. Mr. Pine, hit us up. Yeah. <laughs> Chris Pine, future friend of our podcast. F- yes, please. Future ex-husband of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Make all of our dreams come true, why don't you? <laughs> but I really like him as an actor. He's got that athletic but not unrealistic build. And he's a really good face actor, and he's really funny when you give him the opportunities. And I think some of the best moments in Highlander are the moments of unexpected humor. Yeah, okay, I agree. You know what? I think you're right, too. I I feel like there's no bad answer between our two options. You know, we should have both of them do a a reading for us, and we can really decide. I agree. So why don't you guys get in touch with us? (laughs) We'll make it happen for you. Yeah, Chris Pine and Channing Tatum, hit us up. We'll make an exception for you. We'll we'll take your call. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but anyway i think a lot of what we're going to get with highlander media is going to hinge on that remake it's a pretty long in the tooth franchise at this point and its fan base seems to be you know around our age or older but i think if we get this badass action movie from the dude who created john wick that could resurrect the brand and (laughs) (laughs) And it could give us a a lot of new media like comics, games, TV shows. John Wick's gotten the same thing. I'm really hopeful about that. And I'd like to see the Highlander stories continue with a more modern sense of storytelling. I'd like to see more, more diverse characters. I'd like to see queer characters get introduced because we never got those in any of the movies or the TV shows had a couple of queer-coded characters. I think it was accidental that they were queer-coded. I think they were trying to be edgy. Yeah. Yeah, and I think Highlander is a brand that's poised for a comeback. And I'm really excited for what's on the horizon. And I'm hoping that it doesn't leave me disappointed, as it sometimes does with this brand. So we have gone back to the 1980s and come out on the other side. <laughs> How do you feel about Highlander now? Oh, love it even more. Love it even more. Yeah, I'll go back and I'll watch more of it. Give myself a little rest and we'll go in refreshed and we'll watch even more Highlander and in a sequential order that can actually form a plot line. So now is the time of our show where we discuss brain wrinkles, which is that one thing that is comics or comics related that has just been rattling around our heads for a little while. So... Jess, I've been talking for a bit. Why don't you kick us off? (laughs) I cannot stop thinking about a comic I read a couple of months ago, and I I own it, so I I leaf through it every once in a while. But it's just stuck with me. I picked up issue one of DC Black Label, The Other History of the DC Universe. Oh, yeah. this first issue, yeah, it's so good. And I know I've talked to you about it before in previous conversations, but... This first issue features the origin story of Jefferson Pierce, alias Black Lightning. Yeah. And what I love about this issue is that it not only follows his character, his origin story, but we also see the DC universe through his lens. He grows up in a community with few resources, with crime and violence. 
once he figured out his powers, he uses this for the good of the community because he doesn't have the luxury of just being able to be the savior going after the big game like Superman and Wonder Woman. And he makes a comment about that. He doesn't have that privilege of just being able to go be a hero and go save Metropolis. He has to make sure that his family can survive and that his neighbor doesn't get shot in the street. Yeah. And he has to fight those villains. Have you ever watched the TV show? I haven't. No, I haven't watched the TV show. Okay. Is it, yeah, I'll have to check it out. I haven't watched it for a while, but I remember it was really good. Ooh, okay. I appreciate good recommendations. He also discusses seeing other heroes of color and how they're pushed into the spotlight and they're used. And there's always somebody who's benefiting off of them. It's not ever to their benefit. It's just mm-hmm. they're there for a purpose. They're a tool. And it's a really interesting read, and I will definitely be heading out to Brian's Comics in Petaluma and picking up more issues of that, because it was a couple months ago, so I'm sure there is at least one more issue out by now. Yeah, probably. That's rad. Yeah, it's fun. What about you? So I'm going to break with tradition, and I'm instead going to focus on something that's been rattling around my brain after I dug it up about a week ago while I was researching this episode. I I want to share something with you. It's this interview with Peter Wingfield. He's the actor who played Mythos. And he was doing an interview for one of the many behind the scenes features that they had for the DVD releases of Highlander. This was part of a larger piece about the character of Mythos. And let's just watch. I now look back at it and it's changed my life so profoundly. I now live 5,000 miles away. I have a child who will grow up with an accent that is completely unrelated to my own. (laughs) (laughs) At the bottom of a mountain where where we will go snowboarding next to the ocean where the orcas swim by every year. Right. My my acting, my, uh, my craft is so so totally altered by my by my work my experience on highlander the the places i've had to go with the character of mythos i am i'm profoundly changed by it and it's this this strange little show about immortality. He's getting emotional. I love this. It's so good. I'm five years after. I'm, I'm like, I'm getting emotional, I'm but I'm an empath. About it. It's a show <laughs> that will not die. <laughs> yeah, no, he's got that right. That was really moving. Yeah, that really did touch him. Yeah. And I love that sentiment. It, it goes back to why I love this whole silly franchise. It seems like every time that you talk to a fan of Highlander, they tell you, what the movies or the show meant to them. And it always feels like it was really pretty profound in each case. And I keep thinking about how that first Highlander comic was probably a bootleg that came about while an entire country was celebrating the return of artistic freedom after a generation of trauma. There's that same sense of enthusiasm surrounding the whole franchise. Like people will acknowledge the bad stuff, but they really just seem to focus on the positive. And March 7th this year was the original movie's 35th anniversary, and there's still this really passionate fan base surrounding what it created. One that's surprisingly active, to be honest. 
and positive after a decade of very little new content. I think one of the coolest things about Highlander is that, as Wingfield says, it just won't die. And it won't die because so many people love it so much, warts and all. And to be honest, I wish other fandoms were like that. Thanks for listening to Tencent Takes. Accessibility is important to us, so text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website. This episode was hosted by Jessica Frazier and Mike Thompson, written by Mike Thompson and edited by Jessica Frazier. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits and transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan McDonald and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank, who goes by cut underscore thistles on Instagram. If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to TencentTakes.com or shoot an email to TencentTakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter. The official podcast account is TencentTakes. Jessica is Jessica with a K, and Jessica obviously has a K in it as well. And Mike is Vansau, V-A-N-S-A-U. Stay safe out there. And support your local comic shop.